Du lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Jeg hedder Lise Barkhansen. For den britiske journalist, skribent og tv-vært Kathleen Moran er det ikke svært at afgøre, hvem feministerne er. Det er alle mænd og kvinder, som mener, at kvinder skal have retten til at bestemme over deres egen krop. Og så er der ikke mere at sige om den sag, ifølge Moran. Det er dejligt befriende, men om det også er så enkelt, det er en anden sag. Vi havde fornøjelsen af Kaelin Moran her i Den Sorte Diamant til at fortælle om sin, på det tidspunkt, nyeste bog, Kunsten at være en kvinde. Bogen er en blanding af erindringer og debatbog, hvor vi følger den kvikke Kaelin fra hun er 13 år gammel og gennem de næste 20 år. Det er både citaterne fra hendes egne dagbøger, hendes søskende, samt Jermaine Greer og sladderbladene, som farver bogen. Og først og fremmest er bogen et udtryk for, hvad Moran selv mener om det at være kvinde i det 21. århundrede. Kellyn Moran er både privat og politisk om de emner, der har relevans for os alle sammen, og ikke kun de pæne eller gængse emner. I denne podcast skal du høre Kellyn Moran i samtale med journalist Johanne Mygen fortælle om, hvorfor en håndtaske aldrig vil være en god investering, og hvorfor det er præcis lige så cool at være feminist, som det er for unge drenge at få deres første overskæg. I løbet af samtalen vil Kaline Moran læse passager op fra bogen Kunsten at være en kvinde. Rigtig god fornøjelse. So, I mean... When I, I've been a feminist for a really long time, and I guess quite Ooh, a yeah, part of the audience has been as well. Uh, let's say that word. But, but okay. I used to keep quite quiet about it because it felt a little bit uncool and unsexy and so on. Do you know that feeling? Yes. Yeah. There, there were bad times to be a feminist, and we've just lived through them. And, uh, in, and you know, in many places we are still living through them, I think. Um, the great thing about feminism... Uh, and one of the great things about feminism is that when something becomes as uncool as being fe- a feminist um, has been for such a long time, that fashion dictates that it will have to become cool quite soon, basically around about now. Um, in the same way that in Britain for so long, if you had a moustache, it either meant you were an insane right-wing Daily Mail reading arsehole um, or a homosexual. Um, but the idea that a young straight man might wear a moustache was ridiculous. And in the last couple of years, young men all over Britain have sprouted moustaches. Um, and I i think it'll be very much the same with feminism. Feminism is for women, as moustaches have been, to, uh, to young men who live in East London. It's something whose time has come yet again. So now it's kind of like trendy and cool to be a well, feminist. Well, this is the thing, it becomes so uncool, that it, you know, I mean, just, just simply from a style point of view, it's become, it was been so uncool and so neglected that it became cool. It's like a vintage thing. You know, it's like a beautiful vintage dress from the 1980s. I mean, such as the thing you would wear now. You know, five years ago, were you wearing what you're wearing now? People would presume you were a mad old nana, you know, who kind of, who couldn't afford to go to Zara. Now... This, this spells you out as being, you know, incredibly fashionable and cool because you've seen the beauty in this old item and gone, I will wear it again. And feminism is very much like this dress. Five years ago, no one would touch you with the barge pole. Now, you look beautiful. Well, one of the reasons that it has become cool again is that bo- your book. And I'd like you to kind of like read one of the really kind of famous call for action feminist chapters. Oh, yes. Which one's this? The, uh, 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 the first one, the... Uh, 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 uh. See, I'm the a one about we need to reclaim feminism. Right, yes. Should I stand for this? Reading feels like a standing thing. I'll stand for this. Um, we need to reclaim the word feminism. We need the word feminism back real bad. When statistics come in saying that only 29% of American women would describe themselves as feminist and only 42% of British women, I used to think, 
What do you think feminism is, ladies? What part of liberation for women is not for you? Is it the freedom to vote? Is it the right to not be owned by the man that you marry? Is it the campaign for equal pay? Is it Vogue by Madonna? Is it jeans? Did all this good shit just get on your nerves? <laughs> or were you just drunk at the time of survey? <laughs> These days, however, I am much calmer since I realise that it's technically impossible for a woman to argue against feminism. Without feminism, you wouldn't be allowed to have a debate on a woman's place in society. You'd be too busy giving birth on the kitchen floor, biting down on a wooden spoon so as not to disturb the men's card game before going back to quick-liming the dunny. That's why those female columnists in the Daily Mail, horrible right-wing paper in the British kingdom that's taking over the world, um, giving Daily Whale against feminism amuse me so much. They paid you £1,600 for that column, love, I think, and I bet that's going into your bank account and not your husband's. The more that women argue loudly against feminism, fucking hell, I can't even say the word. I've made, I've made so much money out of it and I can't even say it. <laughs> the more women argue loudly against feminism, the more they both prove it exists and that they enjoy its hard-won privileges. Because for all that people have tried to abuse it and disown it, feminism is still the word that we need. No other word will do. And let's face it, there has been no other word except for girl power, which makes it sound like you're into some branch of Scientology that's owned by Jerry Halliwell. <laughs> that girl power has been the sole rival to the word feminism in the last 50 years is a cause for much sorrow on behalf of the women. After all, P. Diddy has had four different names, and he's just one man. Personally, I don't think the word feminist on its own is enough. I want to go all the way. I want to bring it back in conjunction with the word strident. It looks hotter like that. It's been so wrong for so long that it's back to being right again. They've used that word to abuse us. Let's use it right back at them. I want to reclaim the phrase, I want to reclaim the phrase strident feminist in the same way that the black community has reclaimed the word nigger. You go, my strident feminist. You work that male-female dialectic dichotomy, I will shout at my friends in bars, whilst everyone nods at how edgy and real we are. The fact that it's currently underused and reviled makes it all the hotter, like deciding to be the person who single-handedly revives the popular use of the top hat. Once people see how hot you look in it, they're all going to get one. We need the only word we have ever had to describe making the world equal for men and women. Women's reluctance to use it sends out a really bad signal. Imagine if, in the 1960s, it had become fashionable for black people to say that they weren't into civil rights. <laughs> no, I'm not into civil rights. That Martin Luther King is a bit too shouty. He just needs to chill out, to be honest. <laughs> But the thing I don't really understand is kind of like, okay, we had the fight for the right to vote, and then my mom fighted for like sexual liberation in the 70s. What is the fight about today? Oh God, where do you even start? Um, I mean, there's, well, there's one, 
God, I mean, there, there is such a huge thing. There's one statistic that bears on my mind more than anything else, and it's a statistic by the World Bank, which is that 1% of the world's wealth is owned by women. 99% of all the money in the world is in the hands of men, and 1% of it is in the hands of women. So there, straight away, is, is there where your problem is. Uh, you, know, you know, clearly we're still in, unequal. And I think we lost sight, there's many reasons why feminism kind of, you know, stopped being fashionable for a while. Um, and one of them is, there was a great quote by someone a couple of weeks ago, and I can't remember who it was, that was saying that modern women have mistaken comfort for equality. So, in a world where we have beautiful shoes, you know, you can go to like Primark or Zara and wear something that, you know, it makes you look fabulous in a way that, you know, you couldn't when I was a kid. You know, you can fly off on, you know, sort of like bargain holidays to all these different places. Hair care has become so much more amazing. There's box sets, there's alcohol. You can sleep around a lot more easily than you could uh, even when I was a child. So, we have all these comforts, you know, we have all this, we have a luxurious life. Uh, far more than we did, you know, certainly 100 years ago, certainly more than we did 50 years ago, even more than we did before Sex in the City, um, b before which time I believe no one wore cocktail, uh, <laughs> drank cocktails or wore high-heeled shoes. Um, but that's not equality. And I think if you look at a lot of your life, and particularly younger women, they have mistaken comfort and luxury for equality, and they're two very different things. But your book is not about money and who owns what. It's about, like, Brazilians and shoes and so on. Why is that? Well, because that's, I mean, I mean, you know, I, I, I have my, one of my favorite um, uh, possessions is a T-shirt uh, which uh, uh, homages the Calice lyric, uh, and uh, which just has, my Marxist feminist dialectic brings all the boys to the yard. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is one of my favourite things. And the thing is that if you, if you, I wrote this book. My, I've, I'm, the, I'm the oldest of eight children, and we all come from a very poor background. We were raised on benefits in a council house, and uh, we're, we're all very different. My fifth sister down, Corin, um, is uh, a single mum. She doesn't read newspapers or read books or watch television or read films. Uh, watch films. Um, she just reads gossip magazines. And I wanted to write a book that explained what feminism was. That just went, hey read this book and I'll explain to you why you are a feminist, that she would want to read and would understand and get to the end of it and go, hey, I'm a feminist. And did she? Yeah, I filled it full of the dirtiest, funniest things that I could, and she got to the end of it and went, oh yeah, I'm a feminist. And, um, and that made me happy. Now, if, if, I went, if, I, you know, if I started off writing this book going, I'm going to talk to you about Marxist feminist dialectic, Unless you liked my T-shirt, you wouldn't want to read that book. But when you're talking about Brazilians and high heels and 600-pound designer handbags, what you're talking about is, is, is Marxist feminism. It's just the idea that you know, kind of, that, that you're judged entirely on your your your, produ your wealth production, and you know that we're caught up in this trap of kind of you know constantly destroying ourselves um, with luxuries um, in which we can never be equal, and in which women are particularly unequal. Um, but there was a load more laughs in talking about, uh, for instance, how my pants, my underwear, uh, keep disappearing up inside me because they're too small. I love and that. <laughs> we seem to be... If, you, if you're... I mean, the amount of times that I've been on the tube and I've just felt my pants just go inside me, like, literally be absorbed within me because they're too small. Pants these days are too small. They don't fit properly. We need big... To, for, pants should be from here to... They should be like this. They should be from here to here. That's a sensible area. Um, to cover this with. Um, but if you're wearing something that's like this, that's like a basically a tiny hat on top of your mons, <laughs> then, then what, does, what, what does simple science tell us? Not that I know anything about science. It's that if you move your legs like this, you're gradually going to draw it inside your body. There's <laughs> some, kind of, some kind of capillary action. And then you're going to be in the position where 
the reason that big tote bags became so popular, I think, over the last couple of years, is you then have to cover your genitals with your big tote bag like this and kind of pull them back out again <laughs> whilst on public transport. Now, that's a bust system. That's, that's not a system that works for sisters. That's, we need to go back to the drawing board on that one. Um, so, there was, so there was more. I wanted, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to talk about... Uh, the politics of feminism, because that's, we must never lose sight of that. But the other part of feminism, particularly in the old days, uh, was simple consciousness raising. If you look at that brilliant footage of like, the, you know, the feminists in the 1960s, it's just loads of women with hair very much like mine, uh, very unwashed, smoking roll-up cigarettes in someone's front room with all their children running around uh, and cups of tea on the go, and they're talking about what they're going to make feminism in the 1960s. And they would do that by talking about what action they were going to take, but also just talking about the things that made them unhappy. You know, that's consciousness raising, talking about, you know, talking about Brazilian hair, why, you know, Brazilian waxing, why do we do that? Mm. You know, talking about designer shoes and designer handbags and high heels and how practical they are. And we, there's nowhere that you can do that because everywhere that we discuss fashion and handbags and consumerism is in women's magazines where the answer is always, I know it's crazy, but I'm just going to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> it's just... I know it makes no sense and it hurts. And what, what are, one of the, I mean, there's, there's many things I'm proud of in this book, but one of the things I'm happiest about writing in the chapter where I'm talking about designer handbags and, uh, and fashionable clothes and stuff, uh, I just enjoy writing the sentence, you know a 600-pound handbag? You can't afford it. I'm very pleased to be the first person who's told you that. You, you know, you will never see that in a magazine anywhere. You'll never see that in a celebrity interview. But you can't afford it. I can't afford it. You know, no one can afford a 600-pound handbag. I will be the first person to write this sentence and let you know that. Because... <laughs> Because in magazines, it's always kind of like, you know, it's, you know, kind of they do that kind of cost per wear thing, or it's an investment handbag. No, a handbag will never be an investment. A pension is an investment, you know? <laughs> Property's an investment, gold's an investment, bonds are an investment. Something you're going to wear over your shoulder, then leave on the floor <laughs> while you're sort of smoking fags over it and spilling drinks over it. You know, you, if you wouldn't do that to your pension, don't do it to a bag, you know? It's not... <laughs> If you're staking, you know, when, you, know when you, you know when you're 76 and your legs have gone and you're living alone with a cat, that bag's not going to bail you out. That's not where, <laughs> that's not where the money should have gone. You'll want investments at that point. There's something which really struck me when I read your book, and it's that you are something as rare as a working-class feminist. Yes. Because there's no, in Denmark we always hear like, oh, feminism is elis, elitism, elitist. It's, there's, there's no, oh, it's middle class. But you are working-class feminist. Is that different? Oh, well, I mean, in as much as the, you don't see as many working-class feminists writing about feminism, and that's because, I mean, I don't know what, how it works here, but in the UK, um, it's very rare that if you're working class, you would have my job. Uh, the, the working class, you just don't get through. You're not allowed to communicate your story. And But actually, you're not working class anymore. You're middle class now. Right? No, you see, I would argue against this. I've, I've written a great deal about this because the whole idea that if you start off working class, you come, you're poor, but then you make good and you make money and you, you, know, you can afford to drink wine and you learn some more words and you become successful. The idea that you're then co-opted by the middle class who then go, no, because you are now successful and desirable, you're now middle class. Meaning that everything to do with the working class is 
something undesirable. You're only working class if you're poor and you haven't made it and you're struggling. And as soon as you are working class but you make it, no, you're not working class anymore. We, the middle classes, will co-opt you. So there can never be anything good said about the working classes. And I think there is another... Um, the book that I'm writing now um, is, uh, is a lot about class. And one of the things I want to do is have a T-shirt made up with the working classes do it differently. Because I think there is a a, the working class culture is very different to middle class culture. So what are you doing differently, being a woman? Um, well, I mean, culture, culturally, as, as a working class person, I just noticed the tropes are, you know, if you make it as a working class person, um, you tend to splash your money around amongst your social group. You take everyone with you. So sort of everybody that you knew from back in the day, you bring them with you, you put them on the payroll, you take them out, you pay for everybody's food. That sounds you know, nice. You, you host very extravagantly. You never tend to save money. Uh, you tend not to believe, you know, even though I was going on about getting a pension plan, you tend not to have a pension plan. <laughs> because you're, you're powered on fear and anxiety, and the only thing that keeps you going is spending all the money that you earn <laughs> and then working as hard as you can to earn more. Um, but, you know, I think you know, that's very much not a middle-class set of principles. Uh, you know, the difference with bands is when a working-class band makes it, as soon as they have one number one hit, they're kind of like, we've made it, spend all the money, well, hey! Where as soon as Radiohead have a hit, they're like, this is interesting, we've had a hit. We must now go and learn more about jazz rhythms <laughs> and, <laughs> and develop our career over 20 years. We will all now go to night school and learn more. Um, so so that's, that's the difference between the working classes and the middle class. The move you kind of like made from the working class to the middle class, even though you're still working class, is, is that getting easier or dif more difficult to do? In the, I mean, again, I don't know what it's like here, but in the UK, definitely so. Um, uh, social mobility has just, is, is completely bust. Uh, and it's one of the things that makes me more furious. And, and one of the big differences that I've seen and one of the things that I think has driven uh, the uh, disparity between the working classes and the middle classes is, um, is the internet and things being given away for free. Uh, one, of the, one of the questions I keep getting asked the most in the UK is, why don't you work for The Guardian? Um, I work for The Times, which is Rupert Murdoch paper, and it's behind a paywall, uh, which is sort of seen as a kind of centre, maybe slightly right paper. And the left-wing paper there is The Guardian. And they don't understand why I don't work for The Guardian. First of all, there's no point in writing about Marxism and feminism in a left-wing paper, because they all know that. They're all sitting there, yeah, I think I knew that. Um, whereas you write about these things in The Times, and people are going, good grief. They're kind of monocles falling out. Good grief! <laughs> the lower orders wish to vote. Well... This is quite extraordinary. Um, but, um, but the second thing is that I believe in the paywall, and I know that's a very controversial thing, but I think one of the worst things that's happened for the working classes in the last 10 years is stuff being given away for free on the internet. Because if you look at what's being given away for free, it's journalism, it's writing, it's photography, uh, um, TV shows and movies that you download for free, and particularly music. And they were always the ways that you had out if you were working class. And now that that stuff's given away for free, all of those industries are caved. I mean, you know, I'm sure people who aren't even in the industries know how revenue has fallen out in newspapers and in publishing and in music. You know, these, these are industries that some people are predicting won't be around in 10 years' time. Um, and that was the way out if you were working class. But everything else, so these are the creative things, the things that left-leaning, creative, working-class people might do to earn money. Um, whereas everything else on the internet was not for free. You know, kind of like, you know, car manufacturers didn't start giving cars away for free. You know, kind of, you know, Topshop didn't start giving away clothes for free. You know, holiday companies didn't start giving holidays away for free. It was simply creative input and, you know, creative content. And, uh, and, you and know, how, does, how is that going to inflict how we look at working class? 
You because think? it's not represented, because we're not there, because we're not there. And in this, and this is the same thing with feminism. And when you look at why feminism um, you know, has gone so quiet in the last 10 years, because if, if I, as a, as a working class woman, look at the media and look to see where I am, I can't see anything. What do you see? Do well, you see it's on yourself? me. I, that's, that's all I can see. I mean, all I can see is me. You just don't see yourself. And, you know, on television, again, and I, and I don't know what it's like here, but in the UK, you know, the, the, you don't see working class people on TV. You don't see them represented anywhere. In the charts now, there's this horrible sort of, at the time of Britpop, kind of in the mid-90s, something like 70% of the charts was working class, uh, and that's now only 30% of the charts, because you just can't afford to be in a band anymore. And it's the same with women, kind of, you know, you, you just don't see women represented anywhere. All the women I... You, only, you know, the, the lack of choice in the women that you see represented in popular culture is, I think, what drives so many women to despair and self-harm and self-hatred at the worst end. Um, but in the middle range that we don't even acknowledge as being weird, just constantly feeling dissatisfied with ourselves, just constantly kind of mentally picking, being unhappy about that, kind of being unhappy about the smell, kind of just sort of looking in the mirror and sort of imagining if it was like that. This sort of low-level unhappiness with how we are because everything that we see um, it's very, you know, it's just one of the cliches, but everything we see is very beautiful. It's one of the things that, you know, whenever I added... But isn't this, isn't this changing? Because I know you're a great fan of uh, girls. Yes. And that's completely different. Why is that different? Well, one of the very few, one of the very few places, yes. I mean, that's why I love it so much. Lena Dunham, I don't know who here has seen girls? Is there a kind of general... <laughs> you? Yeah. Um, amazing. Um, I went to interview her in America, and, uh, and I came on the set, and she stopped the filming and went, everybody... Uh, this makes me sound like a wanker, but there's a point to this. She went, everybody, um, there's a very important feminist from uh, England has come to interview me, so say hello to her. And obviously that makes me sound like I'm amazing. Um, but, but, but the reason that I love that sentence is the idea that even two years ago, that I would have gone on a set that was being run by a 25-year-old girl who's like writing, directing, starring it. She's the centre of the whole thing. Who would be able to say, here is a feminist from another country and we're going to talk to each other. You know, you realise how much things are changing. Um, but what I love about, I wrote a comment about this recently, one of the things that worried me most about being a mother um, was the uh, pornographization of culture. Pornography is everywhere, this is how 98% of teenage kids will see sex for the first time, this is how they understand sexuality and human-female relationships. And I was just thinking, what can I do? My daughter's 13, um, however much I try to protect her, at some point soon she's going to be in a car or on a bus with some boy or girl who's going to get their phone and go, look at this and just show her something. Just some hardcore bumming, just some simple kind of, you know, average hardcore bumming, something horrible that that's, you know, represents the majority of pornography on the internet. And I was going, what can I do about this? This is horrible. And, um, and then I watched Girls the week later, and I realised that popular culture had come up with the answer to this pornographization of culture, because the thing that I hate about pornography isn't pornography itself. I watch a great deal of pornography and I'm a fan. Um, it's just that most of it's just horrible. It's just, just, there's nothing in it for me, kind of. That you, all you see, I never see, you know, I, you know, you get to the age of 38 and you're like, I just want to see a woman come. That's, you know, surely the, the bottom line of pornography, you know, it's not going to have an amazing script. You know, there's not going to be incredible computer effects here. You know, we're not going to see the Death Star explode. Um, we're just talking about two people having sex. And I'd like both of them to be having a good time, you know, not, not just 50% of this, both of the people to be having a good time in this very simple thing that's about people having a good time. And you never see it. Um, uh, and it's all about, uh, you know, men doing horrible and weird things to women and women capitulating to it. And then you watch Girls uh, by Lena Dunham, and it's about many things, but one of the things I think it's most about is about the first generation that have grown up post-free 
internet porn and are dealing with it artistically because in nearly every episode they're trying to have sex like porn stars and you're just seeing how, what the actuality of that is they're falling off sofas it really hurts <laughs> you know she gets something in her eye she gets a cramp they you know they, they kind of get they can't quite work out what the right script is to say and they get really self-conscious about it so you're seeing you know a, you know a woman making something funny dealing with with poor uh, you know with porn culture and kind of, in a way, solving it. Because you know, the first time my daughter sees some porn and is upset by it, I'll just sit down and show her girls and go, that's, that's what porn is, and this is what happens when you try to use porn. And, you know, we're all just humans communicating with each other here. You know, kind of, Lena Dunham solved it. Thank you, darling. <laughs> <laughs> but when you watch porn, what do you watch? Is, is it possible to watch femi feminist porn? Well, it's really difficult. I mean, my ideal would be to find stuff that had Aslan from Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, <laughs> Particularly the bit where Lucy and Susan are on his back and they're describing about digging their hands into his fur and he's galloping and galloping. And he's got a very licky tongue, he licks a lot. He's always jumping over cliffs. I mean, Aslan is, is pretty hot. And then, obviously in The Horse and His Boy, there's that bit where he has to punish, uh, what's her name, Avarice, and he kind of rakes her back. And that's quite sexy as well. Um, but oddly enough, you can't find that anywhere on, on YouPorn or RedTube. Um, I went through a phase of watching, because uh, I think the, the, the thing that you're looking, you know, the thing that you want to see is some people having sex and enjoying it. So amateur stuff is usually the best stuff, like kind of. And um, I went through, I hit a really amazing streak about six months ago of just the funniest amateur porn I've ever seen in my life. One of which included um, a couple and he had, no, she had braids. Um, cornrows with beads on the bottom and she was on top and they were having sex and they were going, going at it and they were really enjoying it and then he suddenly went, my retina! <laughs> <laughs> because the beads had gone in his eye. Um, and that was a line I'd never thought I was going to see in porn, that was good. And then... And then there was another one where there was a couple going at it, and again, it was really amazing. And, uh, and then Sunday was sort of just galloping towards the climax, and then you could just hear, Mummy, I want a drink of water! <laughs> oh, that sounds realistic. And they both just jump off the bed like, Jesus Christ! Um, but, th but that's what you want to see. Like, you, know, you want to see the humanity of it, kind of, you know. Um, I mean, I, I, I felt oddly emotional, but the first time I actually found a woman who I genuinely believed was coming. It was kind of like, it was, it was some sex. And the first time I ever genuinely saw a woman orgasm, not pretending, you can tell the difference between the two. Um, um, I was, I, 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 I came at the same time and then I cried afterwards because it seemed like a really emotional thing that I kind of finally had found someone having fun. You know, all these wanks that I'd had that were wasted on really bad, horrible porn and I'd finally found a good one. <laughs> I think it's, it's just the kind of conversation you have in this place. I don't know if this is... I don't know how... Guessing maybe not. I think it's time that you read aloud the story about how you had your first wank. Oh my god, yeah. Great. We haven't had enough wank, have we? Okay. After this, I will move away the conversation from my vagina. Um, no, you won't. I will. No, I won't. No, sorry. It is the Omphalos. It is the centre of the universe. Um, okay, here we go. Um, so, where are we? Okay, so I've gone to the library. This is what it's like being working class and socialist. Um, the first time that you, you masturbate, it's because you've gone to the library provided by the welfare state um, and got a book out that's full of shagging. Um, so I've been reading uh, Jilly Cooper's Riders, which I don't know if anyone here has read it, but it is a classic filthy text. If you haven't, I greatly urge you get it. You will enjoy it <laughs> if you want to wank. Um, okay, um, the first time I try, 
halfway through chapter five. It takes 20 minutes to come. I don't really know what I'm doing. In the book, people delve around in wet bushes until something amazing happens. I kind of futz around a bit with my tongue clamped between my teeth in concentration and determinedly try everything in this absolutely unfamiliar place that I've had for 13 years. When I finally come, I lie back, damp and exhausted, hand aching, out of my mind with excitement. I feel amazing. I feel like the Fonz must feel when he walks into a room and says, hey. <laughs> or like the Duchess of York feels when Andrew kisses her. I feel kind of clean and light and happy. I feel in this cherry blossom starburst glow, with my ears ringing and my breath still ragged, a bit, well, beautiful. I can't write about what's happened in my diary. My sister Kaz and I have had a tit-for-tat diary reading war on for years. Sometimes she writes comments like, you're so pathetic in the margins. <laughs> when an entry particularly disgusts or riles her. But the gusto with which I write about the rest of the day's events does perhaps betray the extremity of my feelings. Mum bought a pastry brush. Useful, I write. <laughs> Cheese sandwiches for tea, they're so tasty. <laughs> Dad says we can get the three amigos out from the video shop, yes. <laughs> and that's my first wank. <laughs> you know, when I read it, I, I actually felt a little bit embarrassed because I loved to masturbate when I was a teenager as well, but I never told anybody, and I was like, how dare you tell all the secrets? <laughs> But the thing is that like, the, the structure of the book, even though I don't make it explicit anywhere, is that each chapter is about something that women keep secret. So it's about growing hair and how you deal with it afterwards, uh, menstruation, masturbation, abortion, whether you should have children, whether you shouldn't have children, eating disorders, uh, imaginary love affairs, bad love affairs. So it's all the stuff that you kind of, you, you keep secret. And the recurrent thing that we had when the, the book first came out was that men would read it and uh, they'd read the first couple of chapters and go, it's really weird. Yeah, I started reading that book and I went, oh my God, my wife is as mad as Catelyn Moran. <laughs> um, and then I'd get like five or six chapters in and I'd go, it's not just my wife and Catelyn Moran that are mad, it's all women. <laughs> and then I'd get to the end and I'd realize it's not that all women are mad, it's that they're all, they're all this stuff that's happening in here, they're trying to keep secret. Because if you think about it, if I think about everything that makes me feel abnormal in the world, in society, it's, it's everything that isn't being a man. You know, being a man is normal, and everything that isn't, the female stuff, is what you have to keep secret. You never talk about the reality of childbirth. You never, you know, to leave a menstrual stain somewhere is the worst thing that you can do. You know, even talking about masturbation as a woman is a terrible thing to do, whereas men so are in the playground going, I spunked up this week. I'm like, men, they talk about masturbation like, I heard so many stories about a teenage boy wanking together and yes. then eating the sperm off a biscuit and so yeah. on. No, and no. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I was at that party so too. Yeah, the, the the big one that I have for this is one of those moments. Where, one of those moments where you're going to go, you, where you kind of go, fucking hell, this is so unfair. Um, is 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 about um, is about blood. Okay, so so you know, I, I have a great many awful stories about my period because I'm quite sort of scutty and and free and easy with my blood. But it was realizing that that um, okay in the film, there's something about Mary. You know the film, There's Something About Mary, starring Ben Stiller and Cameron Diaz? That's a film where the poster 
and the, the, the plot and the key scene of that film are all predicated on the fact that Cameron Diaz has some sperm in her hand that she doesn't know is sperm and unwittingly puts in her hair and makes her hair spike up. Now, first of all, any woman past the age of about 14 or 15 tends to recognize sperm on sight. You know, that's, that's important stuff for us to be able to recognize. That, that stuff can have consequences. So we, the chances... The chances that Cameron fucking Diaz has got a handful of sperm and doesn't recognise it, I think, is fairly, fairly small. And secondly, the whole point of that scene is that the laugh's on her. Stupid old beautiful Cameron Diaz hasn't recognised what's in her hand and has gone like this. Now, I suspect that's probably never happened, and certainly not to Cameron Diaz. But, but what's almost certainly likely to happen, have happened is that you would have had period blood on your fingers, either from changing a tampon or from having a wank, or just from the fact that it goes everywhere. Um, and that you would have had blood on your fingers and you would have then put that through your hair. And then if, if that scene was in a major Hollywood movie, then the joke, then every woman who was watching it would be like, yeah, God, I recognise that. Oh, my God. The, the, you know, women would be in control of that joke. That would be something that would have happened. We'd be able to talk about this. Um, you know, that, that's the scene that I want to see in a Hollywood movie. You know, people, women menstruate once a month. There's this blood is everywhere. And I can't think of a time I've ever seen it in a movie apart from Carrie. Whereas the amount of times that I've seen a man's... A man's head explode like a melon while he's been shot up with 42 cannons. Or like, you know, legs flying off with blood going everywhere. People walking around with their torsos hanging out. All of that blood is fine. To kill someone, to explode them, to chop their head off in saw, you know, to dismember them, to torture someone and have torture blood all up the walls in Hollywood is absolutely fine and will make you billions of pounds. But to acknowledge the fact this gentle blood that happens every month that means that, you know, you will continue the human population, for that to be as, as taboo as it is. It was just one of those moments where, you know, I'd had a couple of smokes and I was just thinking, this is nuts. This is, you know, this is how crazy the world is. You know, this, this is the good blood and the bad blood and we've got them completely the wrong way around. But on the other hand, like... Thank you. <laughs> I mean, the description you had of your first period is about the grossest description of period I ever read. Yes. Why do you have to write so <laughs> gross? <laughs> all right, Mum. Um, <laughs> Because, um, because, because these are all the things we keep secret, and like, kind of, I just figured that these are all conversations we needed to be able to have. While there are things that we keep secret, and we expend all this energy in covering these things up, we are, you know, that's all energy that could be put into fighting the cause and, you know, furthering female liberation and equality. And while we're spending most of our time kind of worrying if we've left a stain on a chair, uh, you know, and removing our, our you know, our, removing our pubic hair, this is all en energy that should be put into the revolution. So I wanted to write a book that kind of meant that we could start doing old-fashioned consciousness raising and talking about these things. And I don't have any embarrassment. Like you you never of. felt like, okay, this is getting a little bit too far. This is actually embarrassing to myself to write this. No. Um, first of all, I've... Uh, well, okay, when, when I wrote the book, I, the cover that I wanted originally um, was I went into a big meeting, we kind of sold the book, and it was the big meeting, it was all around a board table, and they went, as they do, have you got any ideas for the cover? And I went, yes, yes, I have. At which point they looked very uncomfortable because they never want an author to say that. Um, and I think they'd wanted a picture of me kind of half nude, kind of going, the reality of being a woman, kind of like this. And uh, I was like, you know, I have, have actually got a really good idea for the cover, and they went, what's that? I went, I've got this thing called my feminist smile. And they looked scared and went, what's that? And I said, it's this. And I stood up at this boardroom and I, I pulled down my shorts and I pulled down my tights and I pulled up my top and I went, what I want to do is I want to draw an eye on each breast and a nose here and then turn this into a big smile. <laughs> big smile. 
and And they said, well, we hear what you're saying, but... <laughs> I thought I'd go for a picture of your face instead. <laughs> but, um, but I've been telling that story recently when I've been doing events. And uh, I did one on Sunday, and uh, I was doing the signing afterwards, and this woman came up to me in tears, and she said, when you, when you took your stomach out like that, she went, I used to be really big, and I had a gastric band, and I've lost a lot of weight, but I've still got this, you know, I've still got a stomach like yours, is what she meant. And... Um, <laughs> And, um, and she said, when you got it out just then, I burst into tears and I don't even know why, but just to see a normal, and what she meant was shit stomach like yours, um, <laughs> just made me feel really happy. And I just thought, this is how nuts it is. You know, this is the kind of emotional reaction that you have. You just see an absolutely normal stomach. And as a woman, I, you know, I respond to that so much. It's why if I do TV now, whenever I go on TV, I always insist on doing my own makeup really badly, and I won't be styled. Um, and I just want to look scruffy, because I, I just want to see something real. It's this thing where you just stand there kind of at midnight after a couple of drinks going, I would give my heart and soul to see someone out there who looks real and normal and who fucking means it. And so few women are allowed to go out there and do that. We have to cover up so much stuff. We have to look a certain way. The amount of times you see a woman standing there going, no, this is fucking it. You know, this is how I wake up and this is how I go to sleep, and I mean this. But is it getting worse? Because I think like in the 70s they did nothing else but like talking about real women and hairy armpits and looking at their vaginas and, and stuff. What's What's going on? Why are we suddenly so artificial again? Well, I mean, there's a billion, million reasons and, and one, of the, one of the... Because the thing is that... It, It, feminism is down to you to make it up. One of the sort of one of the things that I felt was really important when I wrote this book is to go look. There's only one rule in Feminism Club, which is that men are equal to women. Everything up to that is down to each individual person to make it. There is, you know, there is no big Bible of feminism. You know, there is no grand. Count. It's like the internet. You know, there's no god of the internet. There's no god of feminism. You know, it's a creative act that is is the people who are in it. Whoever's on the internet makes the internet what it is. Whoever's in feminism makes feminism what it is. Um, and So, 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 you know, whoever wants to join in and make those rules what they are is what they do. So uh, there are feminists who would now analyse exactly why things become as bad as they have now. And I have a couple of theories. But I'm not generally interested in finding out why it's got as bad as it is. I just want to identify, go, look, this is how bad it is now, and here's how we can change it. And I'm an optimist, so I absolutely believe that within the next couple of years, this whole, the ridiculous... Because it can't get any more high-maintenance and false than it is now to be a woman. We, because we're running out of money, you know, we still have shrinking economies, you know, whatever tiny economic uh, recoveries we've had in the last couple of years, you know, they're surely going to go into reverse. We can't afford to be like this. And also, aesthetically, we will be bored. We are creatures that constantly like the new. And we're so used to seeing women looking like this that it's only going to take one film uh, where the lead um, star just comes out with a muff that looks like she's got a poodle in her lap for suddenly... <laughs> everyone to be like, I'd like one of those, they look amazing. And suddenly you'll have stick-on ones in H&M. That's, you know, kind of... But, I mean, But that's how it happens. Maybe you're just, I mean, not that original. Maybe you're just saying the same stuff that they said since the 70s. Maybe it's just, why, isn't it just the same? In what way? What, darling? I'm just like, I mean, ah, all this about us not making ourselves up for men and so on. Maybe, I mean, haven't we heard it all before? Well, yeah, but I mean, I think I think we'll get bored of that and move on to the next thing. And and the thing is that I believe in in popular culture kind of even more than I do. Um 
I don't know, in the idea of an academic feminism. You know, there's, if, you know, for 20 books that could be written analysing why things are as bad as they are now and looking at the economic reasons for it, um, they, you know, most of them won't be read. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know how much, in, uh, you know, how much influence they'll have. All it takes is one blockbuster movie, you know, written by some chick who can write a brilliant female character that changes something. You know, if you think of all the amazing, fi you know, often when people go, "Who are your feminist heroes?" I go, "Well, Batman, to be honest, and <laughs> and 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 Chewbacca." Um, and Gonzo in the Muppets. You know, a lot of them are men or puppets. Um, because I don't... <laughs> because, it, you know, it doesn't... And, you know, I've got millions of women as well, but kind of the kind of person that I want to be, with that kind of breadth of um, uh, possibility uh, and experience, in fiction, you only tend to see still in men. I can't think of a, woman, a female character that's like Sherlock Holmes, who's as complex and weird and dark and as incredible as that, or a female Han Solo. You know, you kind of go through all these lists of all these male sort of, you know, or even Adrian Mole in The Diary of Adrian Mole, one of my favourite books, kind of, you know, a teenage girl like that. The book that I'm writing at the moment is trying to write a book with a female, with a, a teenage her heroine in it. Um, you know, who's as you know, who's as talked about or as important as I don't know Holden Caulfield in Catcher in the Rye or something? Because I just don't see any teenage girls in fiction who aren't being eaten by vampires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for all the vampire fiction, twenty-first century. Thank you. <laughs> Although I do sometimes wonder if they, I mean, you know, there's, there's millions of texts that kind of uh, try and unravel um, uh, vampire iconography. And I do wonder if some of it is, our again, our denial of blood. Because, I mean, if I just see a man with blood dripping down his mouth after he's walked away from a woman, I just think, thank you, sweet feminist man. You have... <laughs> you have just come in and made this time of the month much, a much better place. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if maybe that's just our, you know, our gateway into being able to accept these things. Dette var første del af samtalen mellem Caitlin Moran og journalist Johanne Mykin. Du kan lytte til anden del om en lille uge her i din podcast-app. Denne podcast er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og jeg hedder Lise Bak Hansen.